I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog, and I have my uh, co-worker, friend, and uh, professional baseball coach, Sean Latimer, here with me today. Good morning. Happy to be here. He says he's the assistant coach. But uh, we really know he draws up all the plays and everything. Yeah. You're pretty excited about baseball right now, right? I am. Baseball season just started for both my boys, and uh, it's a lot of fun. I love it. We have a couple college baseball players here at the Bonsa Group, so I see Sean kind of migrate towards talking to them about conversations. Uh, we played basketball this morning. He migrated towards another kind of college baseball player, so uh, he's taking all the notes and getting all the tips right now. I didn't even tell you. So our newest advisor, Sean Ulrich, is coming to our practice tonight to do a hitting clinic for the boys. So... It's funny. They always throw it out there. They're like, oh, I miss it. I'd love to get out on the field. If you ever need help, let me know. And I'm like, okay, perfect. This is we I, practice si- I signed you up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, be here at this time. Here's the address. That's so fun. Uh, we're going to talk about an article I wrote today called Magnify Revisited. Why Revisited? Because we have discussed this before, um, but I've been in a few discussions this week, and I thought, man, this is a good primer to go put back out there and kind of have a, have a discussion. And what reminded me of it is I celebrated my birthday uh, last week, and then this week I got to enjoy one of the birthday presents. Uh, my in-laws got me tickets to the Clippers-Warriors game. Before you start smiling, Sean, the Warriors lost, so we don't even have to go I felt there. bad for you. I'm not a Clippers fan. I wanted them to win. but yeah. uh, It was a fun game, nonetheless. But uh, I was joking around at the beginning of the article, I and everybody can laugh at me, too, because I'm not good with direction, so I'm always going to put something in my GPS, no matter how many times I've been there. Uh, and, you know, like because of traffic, they'll tell you 10 different routes to right. get to, uh, to, get to the, the arena. Well, I kept asking Siri navigate to staples center and i I kept bringing up like taking me to the staples office supply store (laughs) and i'm like what is wrong with my technology and it took me a while to remember they changed the name of the arena Mm -hmm. um and uh we won't bring up the name they changed it to uh because uh that is a whole different podcast right um but you can go ahead and look up what uh where the la lakers and the clippers play now so it was funny to me because it was reminding me how important names are and just this idea of, like, if you're going to go somewhere, you first got to know the name, right, before you can even get a roadmap or a destination. And it reminded me of this huge project David did in kind of uh, the summer of 2020 that he called Project Magnify. And Project Magnify, if you really look at it, it was just all about naming, right? But there's so much value in getting those names right, helping investors get the right framing before you start building out the GPS or the financial roadmap. Yeah, it is interesting. We've talked about this before, but the the amount of asset classes and sub-asset classes in the investment world can make it really confusing. And uh, I've noticed that you know, when I have conversations with newer clients that they kind of want to talk shop uh, and they say, oh, I've been doing it myself. And I'll ask them, how did they build the allocation? And they'll use broad categories. But then when you look at what they actually own, it's a little bit of everything, and uh, you can almost see that there's no real rhyme or reason. Yeah, and, and when we look at what David did with Project Magnify, I feel like I was the greatest beneficiary, right? I, I feel like I had a, a process and an orientation for portfolio design, but for a guy that needs to put GPS to get home uh, from the office every day, no, that's not true. <laughs> um, but it was really helpful if you're an advisor on the design side to start to look at what I'm going to call on this podcast and in the article, these ingredients. 
David took the classical allocations uh, in, in finance of stocks, bonds, and alternatives, and he turned it into these seven distinct categories. Um, and even like saying seven, I really like that because it's an odd number. And in my brain, one of those things sits out unique, right, mm-hmm. which is our core dividend portfolio. And that's what it's called, core, because it's the core building block of every single portfolio here at the Bonsa Group. And then the nice thing is when you take away one from seven, you're left with six. And for me, the 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 six other categories that he created, they're just bifurcations of that classic terminology, right? Um, bifurcations of stocks, bonds, and alternatives. So if you don't mind, I kind of want to just go one at a time and kind of uh, unpack those. Yeah, let's do it. I, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I had nothing. Oh. Perfect. So that uh, that core dividend portfolio. Um, actually, I'll let you introduce it because I don't want to do all the talking. Well, it, it was pretty clear that that was the building block of most portfolios, and uh, that the idea is that those are the twenty-seven to thirty-three names that we manage in house. The goal is to purchase individual companies that not only pay dividends but grow those dividends year over year. Um, I don't know how much of a plug I'm supposed to do for our dividend portfolio, but I uh, I'm definitely a believer in that concept. And I think it was helpful in. For folks that are new to the Bonson Group, a lot of people thought that's all we do, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know the exact number, but when you tell somebody, that usually makes up 50 to 60% of somebody's portfolio. Obviously, right? I'm using ranges, averages. Yeah, yeah it, it obviously ranges. But I, I think the light goes off for somebody new to the Bonson Group, like, wait a tick, where's the other half of the pie chart go? Right. And you mentioned there's those other six categories, but what's interesting is uh, we don't use all those categories for every client. We, we really try to apply it to their individual situation. Yeah, and yeah, you hit the nail on the head. That's where we get this idea of customization, that we would define these seven categories at a macro level, right? And we'd give each category an objective and a mandate. And then as advisors, we could work with the investment team to say, hey, what ingredients of these seven is most appropriate for this client? And that's where it's so wide ranging, um, where it is bespoke for the client, right? Like, as you're saying, there can be situations where just the core dividend portfolio could be appropriate as it's complementary to something that they have outside of the Bonson Group, mm-hmm. right? Uh, other situations, they might have four of those. But I, like you're kind of alluding to, it would be rare or we kind of couldn't see the stars aligning where somebody would have all seven. Yeah, and like one of the categories that we'll, we'll talk about later is the illiquid category, and uh, David will allude to it sometimes in the weekly portfolio holdings reports. And I'll have clients ask, you know, like, why don't I own this? It sounds great. And I have to explain that, you know, we design the allocation based off of their balance sheet and their circumstance. And that won't apply to most clients, you know. Yeah, you bring it back to suitability, right? That is something we manage. That is something we do. It's just not appropriate for your financial plan. Right. And um, that's the reminder we always have to help people that what is the number one duty of the investment portfolio to meet the needs of the financial plan. I thought it was good how it uh, broke up the fixed income portion too, how we split up uh, the what we call boring bonds, more investment grade side of the bond portfolio, and then the credit side, which might be more like high yield floating rate. And uh, I think at the same time, that kind of helped us introduce like expense-based planning and really build allocations from there. I, it really helped me. Yeah, and like we said, core dividend portfolio that's set apart it's the core building block and then sean's introducing now we'll just go one by one Mm -hmm. right we're no longer calling them bonds because it's such a broad category right so now what sean said is that we bifurcate it into two categories which is boring bonds 
and credit. And, and what we did there, the names should be helpful, right? If you're not a finance background, boring bonds should be boring. Mm-hmm. So what Sean's saying is that's where we will house uh, investment-grade corporate bonds, treasuries, investment-grade municipal bonds, uh, government-backed, uh, mortgage-backed securities, things like that, where the primary goal there is uh, like lower volatility and preservation of capital, and the secondary goal is the production of income. But then we see the flip side, right? On credit, we almost inverse that, right? right? Where we're saying, hey, we actually want to drive more income on that credit side. We're willing to buy emerging market debt or bank loans or uh, high-yield bonds or securitized credit. So higher income generation is the primary goal. Um, And then on the secondary side, we're actually willing to accept volatility uh, that looks like the equity market. Yeah, because that's going to add to the total return. And then the real question comes into play for clients. It's not volatility. It's normally liquidity. So when would they need access to the money and where would we go first? We're probably not going to go to, um, you know, a credit fund or a uh, alternative investment, something that maybe has quarterly redemptions if someone needs money. And uh, that, that we would lean on that boring bond portfolio for that. Yeah, exactly. So you're saying kind of like when you go into the financial planning, the financial planning needs some sort of reservoir of reserves. You know what I mean? That like uh, if, if if the electricity goes out, that's your generator, right? You're going to mm-hmm. go use that. I use that as an analogy, right, if, if things are ugly. Um, but in that, it's so simple. It's it, To me, it's actually funny because I, I, I think this is um, so impactful, even though even when we're talking about it, it just seems like, hey, you guys are just creating names. But I go back and I think about what happened in March of 2020? Somebody saw that the stock market was absolutely puking, and they went and said, oh, I'm glad I own bonds. And then they turned to their bond portfolio, and they're like, my bonds are down 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because that, that classical categorization was taking credit and boring bonds and placing them together. Right. And you weren't getting that vision of what is your reserves or your boring bonds separated from something that actually behaves like the stock market. Yeah, then that poor investor opens their statement in 2022 and their boring bonds are down 10%. <laughs> yeah, and it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah. And I, I kind of uh, mentioned that in the article. It, it's funny because um, that helps. So we have this idea that boring bonds should have some sort of stability, right? Mm-hmm. And that rule is broken in 2022, Yeah. right? But you can at least assign a narrative to that of saying, hey, you've never really seen interest rates spike this much, but credit actually performed better than boring bonds. And then again, you could peel that back and say, oh, now I start to understand that credit can own things where it's floating rate, right? And floating rate is actually defense against a rising interest rate environment. And then you start to really think, oh, like high-level investing has to look at How sensitive is my portfolio to changes in oil prices or changes in interest rates or uh, liquidity crisis or something like that? And we start to see, oh, now this categorization that David has created is very, very helpful in creating what I believe is the most important thing, clarity. Yeah, and making sure that the allocation matches the financial plan is the most important part because you can name the different investments different things. But uh, when push comes to shove and – um, the worst case scenario does happen. Markets are puking and you have some sort of need for extra money that you weren't planning for. Uh, we have to be prepared to get that without selling things at depressed values. Yeah. And what you'll see when you when you do like a performance report, because 
not only are you going to see these names on your pie chart of how your portfolio is designed, but you're going to see them from a performance standpoint. And then you're going to see what diversification looks like, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to see one category. I'm thinking of last year that was, you know, it might've been down 20, 25%. Uh, and then, you know, it's, it's opposing cousin was, you know, up five or 6%. And you're like, oh, this is diversification in a practical sense. Yeah. And of course you have people that say like, why do we own this? Why, why don't we sell this loser and put more money in our winners? <laughs> yeah. The, the, it seems like the best investing idea. Let's buy the good stuff and sell the bad yeah, stuff. Yeah, Come on guys. This is easy. So you're starting, even on this podcast, you're starting to get this vision of, okay, Trevor's describing these seven categories, core dividend. Now we've separated the bonds into boring bonds and credit. Um, on the next side is we, and, and I, I want to use this term loosely because not everything we own here is stocks, but it is stock centric, right? It's equity centric. Mm-hmm. So we're almost separating a, a classic stock classification, which core dividend is, into two categories that we are calling income enhancements and growth enhancements. And they're exactly what they sound like. One, one generates a much higher uh, income yield than the other. And the other is the idea is that the total return is going to come primarily from capital appreciation. Yeah. And as one would assume, if we're trying to enhance something, and this is what I wanted to get through in the article, you're also enhancing the volatility. So going back to what we said earlier, if that core dividend portfolio is the core building block, you have to imagine these other pieces, income enhancements or growth enhancements, as a layering, right? You're layering those on top. Um, me and my boys, we, uh, they really like to make pancakes. Uh, and they, like, they know how to do it now. So my four-year-old like, runs downstairs. He opens the right cupboard, and he pulls out the flour, the baking powder, the baking soda, the salt. Like he knows every, uh, the sugar. And um, when he's making it, he now is getting the concept of uh, proportions, right? That like, hey, the base is going to be flour and like baking soda is going to be a, a tiny allocation in that mix. And you, you have to come with that same kind of uh, chef mentality when, when it comes to portfolio design because the base is going to be the core dividend portfolio and these enhancement pieces because they enhance volatility as well as growth or income, um, they have to be used in smaller portions. Yeah, they're, they're normally a much smaller percentage than the overall allocation, which is interesting because it, it does, I think, help as a diversifier. Uh, but then uh, either when they're doing well or not well, it does add an, uh, an extra layer of questions. You know, like, why do we own this? What does it do? But uh, I, I think it it does help diversify the overall portfolio. And I've said this before in here, and David Bonson said it, that if you don't have something in your portfolio that you don't like, you're not diversified. Yeah, and even even on top of that, you, you almost have to give a lesson in attribution, right? Because something might look like a, like we called last year, we talked about this a lot, but like emerging markets, right? Mm-hmm. Emerging markets last year was a blemish on the portfolio, right? But then you, you look at it and you zoom in, you're like, oh, based on the size the attribution to the bottom line, right? Let's just make up numbers. If something is down 10% and you had a 10% allocation, that becomes a negative 1% uh, to the bottom line, right? It's this concept of attribution. And we were having to remind people like, hey, with growth enhancements, with emerging markets, our, our, our thesis wasn't 2022. Our thesis was one would accept greater volatility in exchange for what we were, were striving for um, is a, an elevated outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not going to happen a single year 
because you get elevated volatility. And then even this year, we're starting to see a really strong recovery from some of those investments. And that's how these things behave, right? We always talk about this concept of one step backwards and two steps forward. Um, with some of these things, it's it's four steps backwards and five steps forward. And that's where we are doing portion control uh, to make sure that these are complements, not core. And that goes into like investment management 101, which is counterintuitive because that same person that said like, hey, why don't we sell this loser? It's actually the opposite. We're probably going to add to it because it's at a discount. And I think that's sometimes tough for people to wrap their mind around. Yeah, David um, talked about this week that we just did $400 million worth of transactions, right? Mm -hmm. And it was all around rebalancing. And rebalancing naturally does that counterintuitive thing, right? Where you're adding to the things that have kind of underperformed relative uh, and you're trimming the things that have done quite well from a profit standpoint. So again, now we, we're, we're getting deeper and deeper, right? So we have a core dividend portfolio. Bonds have become boring bonds and credit. Um, the stock complements have become income enhancements and growth enhancements, which leaves us the last piece, uh, which is alternatives, where we actually kept the name. Um, but we added uh, its close cousin, which we called illiquid investments. Yeah, and these are probably the, the two hardest categories because uh, I, I can tell people often have kind of a puzzled look on their face when I talk about stocks in detail, I talk about bonds, and then I bring up alternatives. And I say, I know that's an unfair word because it pretty much means anything that's not a stock or a bond. And uh, they, they normally chuckle after that. But the, the idea is to break down different categories because we do have a pretty large menu, but we like – the other seven categories will only pick the right alternatives for the client circumstance. It almost feels, feels like even like census data, right? They give you like, uh, you know, are you one of these 30 things or other, right? It, yeah. It's just a catch-all. Like even in the article, I joked around calling it a junk drawer. Not that the, it's junk, but what do you find in the junk drawer? You find a stick of gum and you find scissors, yep. right? Like these things don't deserve their own place, um, but they are all categorized together. And kind of help our listeners and in, in, uh, what I always do from just a like a, a, a men mental organization standpoint, I always look at alternatives as either being a private investment or they are a hedged strategy. What I mean by that is, you know, in public markets, you can buy stocks, bonds, and real estate. What if you buy those on the private market? Well, then they are become alternatives, right? Mm -hmm. They We call them private equity, private stocks, right? Um, private lending, those are private bonds. Yep. Um, and private real estate or non-publicly traded REITs or whatever you want to call those. So one category within alternatives, right, a subcategory, I guess, in my, in my own brain, is just like, oh, it's a private investment. So that is very easy to digest. The other side would be hedged strategies. Man, a lot of opinions on hedge funds. Mm -hmm. But I, I really want to help folks out. Like the intent when somebody buys a hedge fund um, is that it would not behave like stocks, bonds, and um, even some of your classic alt private investments, right? Uh, that the, the risk mechanics would be different, which means that the return mechanics are going to be different, which makes it very hard for some investors to stick with those investments. But from an investment committee standpoint, how do you siphon through all the hedge funds out there? It's manager skill, right? So you're looking for manager skill to create an elevated outcome, but manager skill is also a risk because you could be on the other side of the coin. 
Yeah, it's interesting because most people want to compare their investments to a, a benchmark, right? So if uh, you know, the S&P 500 or the Dow is up and they look at their head strategy and it was down, they think, oh, these guys stink. But uh, th- that's not the real benefit. You have to look at averages over time during good times and bad times. Yeah, and that's the idea that um, if you want to smooth out those like high highs and low lows, right, peaks and troughs, whatever you want to call them, one way to do that is have an asset class that performs differently. Uh, and again, what does it all come back to? Suitability. Like, who is it appropriate for? The reason we had to make a, um, the bifurcation here in alternatives and not just call them alternatives because we had an elevated type of alternatives that actually had a greater illiquidity, right? And it was very easy to name that because David just called them illiquids, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's where we were um, case-by-case scenario. We were bringing to clients rare opportunities that just didn't really have any definable liquidity. Not, not, all, not all of them are the same. So I, I don't want to speak in generalizations, but you know maybe uh, we had a, a, a commercial real estate deal or an, a hotel or something that clients could invest directly in. Or maybe there was a, a you know, you and I know of a private investment recently of a, a notable company that clients got access to. Um, we needed to categorize that in its own place so that folks realized um, that the holding periods on some of that stuff might be 10 years. And then you have to look at your entire balance sheet and your portfolio to see what kind of illiquidity budget do you have. Well, it made sense too because a majority of the alternatives that we use will offer uh, quarterly redemptions or maybe semi-annual, sometimes annual redemptions. But some of these other illiquid investments, it's definitely going to be years, five years, 10 years plus. Yeah, and on that note, we, I mentioned a little bit in the article. I didn't, I didn't really hone in on it, but there has been an evolution in retail investing, right? Uh, a lot of the things that you get access to today, ten years ago, were only accessible from an institutional level. Think um, endowments, pensions, th- things of that nature, um, and they're trying to make them more consumer friendly. So, like you mentioned, if markets are um, cooperative. Some of these things are like monthly or quarterly liquidity. That's not real illiquidity, right? right? Yes, that's very different than, you know, you've been able to push a button and sell a stock immediately, uh, but you don't have to be very patient if it's monthly or quarterly liquidity. But some of these other things in this illiquids category uh, are going to have a much longer maturity cycle. And in that, I don't want to dive into this too much, but... You could imagine if you're going to a, a pool of investments that we're categorizing as illiquid, you're going to thin the population of folks that could or would be interested in buying those things when you have a less efficient market because there's less participants. You can actually get in at pretty attractive valuations. So it's not always the case, but the whole idea of this illiquidity premium one of the places it comes from is that if there's a thinner population of buyers and we'll just use a stock, right, and, and you could buy something at $10 for every dollar of earnings, P.E. ratios, things like that, that would normally in publicly traded markets be 15 times earnings. Well, a lower valuation at the starting point is one of the best predictors of future returns. So this idea of illiquidity premium is just being able to buy things at bargain prices that if you're willing to hold on to them for the long the long run, um, it can be accretive to you. And it does make sense because there's a few natural screeners 
because most of these investments have some sort of minimum. So that eliminates X amount of the population. You typically have to be an accredited investor or qualified purchaser to be able to purchase them. So that eliminates another portion of, you know, the community of investors. And then, like you mentioned, when you're buying something private, you are getting a lower uh, valuation because there's less buyers. It it does make sense. Uh, But that being said, if push comes to shove and if a fund gets gated, meaning if uh, the limited partners of the fund don't redeem shares that quarter because they're protecting the investors and they don't want to fire sell things, that's a risk that comes with it. So you, you have to get in line and kind of wait and be patient. Yeah, it's this idea of there is no free lunch. Um, and you, I like how you filter through that of like, you know, first, you've got to want it. Next, you got to be a qualified purchaser, um, you know, for, for whatever investment right. we're talking it depends about. Depends on which one, yeah. Third, you got to have an access point, right? Like you've got to be working with a group that has access to that or that is presenting that. So you get this idea of, um, I don't want to say exclusivity because I think that sometimes that's used as a marketing tool. Yeah, exactly. Like a pitch. Like I I heard somebody. We have access to the most exclusive alternative investments. Well, we all have access to it, but yeah. Yeah. It happened the other day where somebody was talking about it and they were like, you know, I'm there because they get exclusive access. And I was like, you know, you always want to be careful on on correcting somebody, but I, I did want to create clarity there on like, hey, tell me what you mean, and let's unpack an example of that, and let me show you other routes that one could get access to that, just so that we're on the same page. That was a very nice way of you to tell them that. <laughs> you are wrong, sir. Um, well, with that, that starts to give you kind of this vision, even on a podcast, like I'm saying, of, okay, Trevor's describing these seven categories that David created as a better taxonomy of, of how to organize things um, and create clarity for the investor on how these things should behave. So, again, we'll just core dividend portfolio, growth enhancements, income enhancements, boring bonds, credit, alternatives, illiquids. And then if you're a client of the Bonds Group, you know that to be true, that when we show you the pie chart, it has those names. When we show you the performance reporting, it has that categorization. Um, And I will say, like I said earlier, greatest beneficiary of that is the advisor. It's me because it makes it very easy for me on the design side, just like my boys do, pulling out those right ingredients and understanding how to portion them to be most suitable for the financial plan. And it makes it easier for the clients to understand. I think back to uh, when we worked at a larger institution together, and they would break down the allocations to 3% small cap growth, 3% small cap value, 3% mid cap value. And there's about 14 different categories that I can promise you clients don't know what they own or why they own it. Yeah, you're spot on, right? Morningstar uh, changed the culture of uh, retail um, investing, and they made that nine-box category, which Mm -hmm. you're saying, whereas basically small, mid, large, and then value, core, uh, growth, and then advisors were feeling like they had to fill every box, and then they were surprised, like, wow, the correlations with a lot of these things was close to one. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, a real lesson in diversification there. Um, if you didn't hear it, Sean's alarm went off, which means that we have to wrap up this podcast, <laughs> which means he has a client call because that's what we do full time. Like we are advisors. Um, but uh, thank you for joining us today. If you have questions, you're welcome to email Sean or myself, Trevor. Um, very easy email to remember, Tom, T-O-M, at thebonsagroup.com. T-O-M at thebonsagroup.com. All comments, questions, um, ideas for future discussions that you'd like to hear are most welcome. Um, We'll ask you to rate the podcast five stars or preferred. You can leave comments there as well. 
And then, of course, we'll be back next week with more of our Thoughts, Thoughts on, on Money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.